You can be seated. Heavenly Father, as we uh, get into your word today, uh, I pray that you would um, uh, speak uh, through the reading of your word, speak uh, through me, and um, that I would just be out of your way and and that people would see you and uh, the the truth that you want us to see. We again thank you for Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Motivation is a powerful element of storytelling. Uh, So much so that if you watch a movie or you read a story where the motivation of the main characters is not shared, most of the time that storyline is kind of a bust. Uh, That movie is not something you want to see again. When you tell a story, you have to reveal the core motivations of the characters of the story. This is true from a very early age. Almost uh, about half the time when I go to put Lila up uh, for, for bedtime and uh, I'll read her a story, about half the time she went, wants to read stories from a, a, a series of books called Fancy Nancy. Now, I understand some of you probably don't know who Fancy Nancy is. You're worse off for it, I, I assure you. I, it's a Disney Junior show and it's about a little girl shockingly named Nancy, um, and a super creative uh, title for the show. But at some point in her life, Nancy became fixated on, on France, and specifically Paris. And so one of the driving motivations of Nancy is that she wants to, in all things, be fancy uh, like the people in Paris. And, and she, just, she really, really just wants to be a fancy person, right? Sam, my oldest son, he just uh, recently has discovered and gotten into Pokemon. Uh, and so we're watching uh, these shows that are not super well done, uh, but we're watching these shows and they're all about these characters that are trying to collect these Pokemon. Uh, and it's instilled in my son, Sam, a motivation to also collect all these Pokemon. So the good news for the Higgs household is that our Christmas present list has been established and taken care of, right? We know exactly what we're doing. But this is even true in adult shows and adult TV and even some stuff that you wouldn't think about that Cheryl and I, for a good long while, we watched a show called Good Bones, right? And you would think that it's a renovation show out of Indianapolis and you would think that, man, someone kind of renovating homes in Indianapolis, their probably primary motivation is to make money. And I'm sure they do want to make money. But as that kind of home improvement show uh, unfolds, you find out that this mother-daughter combo, their motivation is to renovate whole uh, kind of suburbs and and whole neighborhoods of Indianapolis to make the entire city better. It's like, wow, what a vision, right? That we're going to renovate one home at a time and make the entire city of Indianapolis a better place to be. Motivation matters. It just does. So what is yours? What motivates you? There was an interesting uh, book and study done uh, by a guy named Daniel Pink, and he wrote a book called, uh, after he did all this study on motivation, To Sell is Human. And here's what he writes. He says, most people believe that the best way to motivate is with rewards like money, the carrot and stick approach. That's a mistake. The secret to high performance satisfaction at work, at school, and at home is the deeply human need to direct our own lives, to learn and create new things, and to do better by ourselves and our world. Now, this is a great motivation, I think, when you think about what motivates a person's life to do better by, right? So if we were honest, I think that, this is church, so we should for sure be honest here, right? That a certain amount of our motivation comes from self-interest, 
right? We want to do better, as he writes, we want to do better by ourselves. We want, we want to excel in our profession. We want to be healthy. We want our family to be in good shape. We want to make enough money to provide to be sure we are self-interested. And while that's true, I think deep down we know that this quote is also true that the highest calling of a human life, the way God created us to be, is not just to do better by ourselves, but to do better by our world. To serve, to love, to make a difference. And we know this is true because we've been to funerals, right? Most of us have. We've been to funerals and you have never been to a funeral where they're like, hey, welcome to the funeral. We're going to kind of eulogize the, the man or woman uh, that, that passed away. And here's what we want to say. Boy, oh boy, was he or she self-interested, right? That's the thing that mattered most to them. That guy, he betrayed his own mother for a single dollar. You've never been to that funeral. Now, you may have been to a funeral where that's what everybody's thinking, but you've never been to a funeral where that was said out loud and celebrated because we know self-interest is not the only thing that should motivate a life, right? We know it from our own personal experience. And I think this has been hard over the last year and a half, but when we get out of our own bubble and we become less self-interested and more interested in others, those are the times of our life where we feel most alive, most on mission, most uh, the way that God created us to be. It is doing good by ourselves and by others. And lastly, we know it from the scriptures. Share this verse a lot, but here it is again. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Look at this. Not looking to your own interests but each of you should look to the interests of others. We're gonna do better by our world. We're not just gonna do better by ourselves, we're gonna do better by our world. So you can open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 5. And I wanna show you this morning what I believe is the fuel or the engine that drives this mentality of saying, I can't just be interested in myself. I've got to do better by others. I've got to do better by our world. I can't just be self-consumed. There is an engine that drives it, and I want to show it to you today. Because if we're honest, and again, this is church, right? So we are being honest. If we're honest, our society struggles to be interested in others. We are very, very, very interested in ourselves, we struggle to be interested in others. So I want to teach us the fuel. I want to give us the engine that will motivate us to live the life that God created us to live. Now, this is Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. The first letter, and you should go home this afternoon and read it cover to cover. The first letter is harsh. I don't know what church you came from or what church you grew up in, but you might be tempted to say that was a dysfunctional church. Read 1 Corinthians. All right, 1 Corinthians, I guarantee you, not that we're trying to one-up each other, but 1 Corinthians was worse than any church you maybe grew up in or any church you've ever experienced. They had one problem after another. They had what I would call the favorite leader problem, where they were arguing about what leader they followed and what leader they listened to and what leader uh, they thought was best. And Paul kind of tries to point out to them, you're not really arguing about who your favorite leader is. You're really arguing about how smart and intelligent and wise you are. 
right? So there's the favorite leader problem. There's the sexual sin problem, that there was a guy in that church that was having an affair uh, with, with uh, his father's wife, right? He was having an affair with his father's wife, and all God's people said, you, right? And there were people in that church that were just accepting it and even celebrating it in the name of grace. There was the freedom in Christ problem where there was this, uh, th- this, these false gods in the city and they would sacrifice an animal to the false god and the leftover meat would be sold in the market. And there was this great debate amongst Christians about whether or not a Christian should eat that meat that had been sacrificed to an idol. And they're like, well, I don't believe in that idol and <laughs> steak's a steak, right? You know, I mean, you know, you know, pass the A1 sort of thing, right? And people are like, no, 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 you can't, you can't do that. You can't, that was sacrifice. And, and so they were arguing about that. Uh, they were arguing about their fellowship meals, that in their fellowship meals, that the rich were being seated first and they were overeating and eating everything and sometimes even getting drunk off of the wine. And, and then those that had less than were left with virtually another, uh, with, uh, with virtually nothing. And the tone of the first letter, when you read Paul, is stop being so interested in you and your arguments, and your way, and your comfort. Be more interested in others. And it kind of culminates to 1 Corinthians 13, which is the love chapter of the Bible, um, which we often read at weddings. I read it at weddings too. It's a really great chapter, but it's actually for the church. That this is, stop being so interested in yourself, and love and care for others. Well, apparently things improved. Because 2 Corinthians is a lot, the tone's a lot different. And here's what uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, starting with verse 14. For Christ's love, you can underline this if you underline in your Bible, for Christ's love compels us. We are convinced that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So he ties this attitude to the resurrection. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone was in Christ, he's a new creation, uh, is in uh, Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal to us, through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So I want to talk to you for a minute about Christ's love because Paul starts out his argument in 2 Corinthians 5 that this, the engine, the fuel that motivates this interest in others is Christ's love. So I want to talk to you for a minute about his love, since it is our motivation for how we live, how we serve, how we think about others. Christ's love compels us. That his love is demonstrated through his birth. That we are getting ready to enter, probably you two, one of my favorite times of year, fall, and then kind of one holiday after another, right? It is Halloween, which is really, really fun for kids, Thanksgiving, Christmas, my birthday's in January. I'm totally kidding, but... um, one holiday after another, right? But we're coming up on Christmas. And it's this moment when we remember when Christ, motivated by love, 
left heaven and came to earth. Think about that for a minute. He left the perfect to come to the imperfect. He left the righteous, the fully righteous, to come to the unrighteous. He left heaven and came to earth. Why? He loves us. His love is demonstrated through his birth, yes. His love is also demonstrated through his example. Think about this for a minute. Christ could have come and just offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins right away. God could have arranged for things to happen that way, but instead we get these four uh, books of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that are a record of Jesus' life that he lived here, his ministry, and his example. Why? It was not enough for him to forgive our sin. He loves us enough to forgive our sin and to show us a new and better way to live. So his example is based in his love. So I would encourage you uh, later this week to read through the Gospels and see those Gospels, the life of Jesus, as Jesus' love letter to you, that you do not have to walk in bitterness. You can choose grace because Christ chose grace and he is in you. You don't have to walk in selfishness. You can choose sacrifice because Christ chose sacrifice and he is in you. You don't have to walk in fear. You can choose courage because Christ chose courage and he is in you. The life of Jesus teaches us and shows us these things that he did because he loves us. His love is demonstrated through his life. His love is also demonstrated through his death. And I think this is the easiest thing for us to understand. When you read through uh, the end of the Gospels, the, the cross narrative of the Bible, or if you've ever seen the passion of the Christ, you are probably like me, absolutely moved by the love of your Savior. When you read about the physical abuse he took on, the spiritual separation from his father. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might receive the righteousness of God. The the, the relational agony when he's betrayed by his closest friends. And when you read it, like me, you are moved by his love because that's why he did it. So that our sins could be forgiven and we could know and worship God in this life and in the next. Lastly, and this is, Paul ties it to this. His love is demonstrated through his resurrection. Now, I think it's easy to see the love of Christ in the cross. It's maybe easy to see it in his birth. It's easy to see it in his example. I think maybe it's harder to see it in his resurrection. How does the resurrection of Jesus demonstrate his love for us? Isn't the resurrection just kind of a demonstration of his power versus a demonstration of his love? So I want you to think about it this way. Let's say that I've decided, I announce it from this stage, that I'm gonna give you a million dollars. Right, right? You didn't know how awesome I was, right? You had no idea I was such a nice guy. I'm gonna give you a million dollars. But over time, all right, I say this like six weeks ago, over time you start to kind of realize that I've never actually proven to you that I have a million dollars to give. In addition to that, I've never really given you access to not just not a million dollars, I've never given you access to even one dollar. I've never written you a check. I've never given you a key to a safety deposit box. Hey, Monday morning, the million is here. Here's the the key. I've never done that. I've never given you like an envelope with a wad of cash in it, right? It's good to know that I've told you what I'm going to do. But at some point, right, you'd be patient with me for a while because I told you I'm gonna give you a million. But I'm going to let this go for eight, nine weeks. But after eight or nine weeks, put up or shut up, right? 
right? I, I mean, demonstrate that you have the money. Prove that you have the money. Prove that, give me some kind of access to the money. The resurrection gives you the proof that you need. That Jesus was who he said he was. He is who he says he is. He will forever be who he says he will forever be. He said he was God in human flesh. He said he could forgive your sins. He said all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. His resurrection proves what he said was true. And he wanted to provide you proof because he loves you and he wants you to believe. Here's the other thing the resurrection does. The resurrection gives you access to the promises of Jesus. He not only provides you proof that he has the million dollars, he gives you access to the money itself. You know what Jesus said about himself one time? I am the door. I am the gate. I am the way. Jesus repeatedly described himself as the access point to the promises of God. And since he is alive, here's what that means. He is actively today and forever providing you the access you need to receive the promises of God. You need God's grace? Jesus is alive. He is the way. He is providing you access to his grace. He is providing you access to his power. He is providing you access to God's presence. He is doing all of that because he's alive and he is the way, he is the door, he is the access point. And if he were dead, he couldn't do it. But because he is alive, he is continually and repeatedly providing you the access you need to receive all the promises of God. And I think when we understand these things that I've just shared with you, thank you, for walking with me through all that. I know it was a lot, but when we understand God's love for us and that it's not just for me, it's for all of us, when we understand it, I think Paul's words make more sense. We are compelled by it. We are motivated by it. Here's how the text continues. I love this. We don't regard anyone from a worldly point of view. It changes the way we view people. This love does. We don't regard anyone from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ this way. So again, to do a little bit of a dive, I think we have to think for a minute about, all right, so what are the kind of inappropriate ways that people viewed Jesus? Since he ties it to that, how did people regard Christ that, that is not the, way to, the right way to regard Christ? And I think you could look at it in two ways. You could look at it from the crowds, that the crowds sought to use him. When they saw Jesus, they saw him as someone that they could use to achieve their own purposes. And there are multiple stories in the New Testament you could point to. Uh, the, the one that I kind of thought of as I was studying this week is John 6. Jesus has been healing and preaching all day long. The crowds have gathered. They're kind of pushing in on him. And Jesus decides that instead of just sending them away, he's going to feed all of these people. And he feeds 5,000. He finishes that miracle. He crosses the sea. And the crowd sees that he's done that. And they walk all the way around to greet him on the other side. And Jesus says this thing. He says, very truly I tell you, you are not looking for me because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. It's regarding somebody from a worldly point of view. It's saying, what can this relationship, what can, this, what can they do for me? And it's easy to fall into, isn't it? They have influence that could help me in my career. They have dollars that could help me pay my bills. They have friendships 
that could help me solve my loneliness. And we begin to see people not as children of God, not loved by him, but we begin to see people as a commodity to serve our purposes. And the worst thing, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, is the more that we do this, the gospel isn't served. What ends up happening is I'm served, right? The good news isn't served. Jesus isn't served. I am. My 10-year-old uh, just recently, I don't know how we've deprived him of this, but he just recently discovered Bob Ross, the painter, right? We were, we were kind of looking around one day uh, on Amazon Prime and just kind of discovered it. And I was watching it with Sam the other day, and Bob is so calm and soothing. And I think that's part of what my son Sam loves about him. But when you watch Bob Ross paint, he starts out with like 50 different, 15 different colors on his palette. And he uses them in different ways. And at the end of the painting, you have these happy little trees, right? Um, in a forest, right? All the colors come together and they make this beautiful painting. That's a picture of godly relationship. That some of us are greens, some of us are reds, some of us are yellows, you know who you are, right? And we love and serve one another and we end up together making this beautiful thing. What happens when I regard people from a worldly point of view, I'm like, how can I use them to achieve my purposes? What ends up happening is that the painting of my life becomes one color, red, green, blue, whatever I happen to be. And that, that canvas is just covered in that one color. And it'll be like me inviting you over going, hey, don't you think that's a beautiful painting? And you're going, dude, it's a red square. Right? It's a red square, right? It's not really beautiful. It's not really artwork. It's not really paint. And that's what we deprive ourselves of. We, we deprive ourselves of seeing the beautiful thing that God wants to do in us and in the world when we regard people from a worldly point of view. So uh, some of his followers saw him as somebody they could use. Here's the other thing I want you to see. His enemies sought to place him in a box that would make it easy to attack him. False identity, false accusation began to swirl around Jesus. And they began to say things about him like, man, that guy, he's a blasphemer. He's crazy. He's a liar. And they began to label him in ways that would make it easier to destroy him. And we still do this today. We want to paint people with a singular brush that most of the time makes it easier for us to attack them. And that guy, that guy's part of the rest, uh, vast right-wing conspiracy. That guy, he's a left-wing nut. They're anti-vax, they're pro-vax, and on and on and on it goes. And we label people, and then we use the label to identify them in the way that we want to identify them, and we use the label to attack. Here's what Paul says. In Christ Jesus, we are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. We don't regard people that way. Because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Now, when we see people, we do label them in a certain way, right? We, we do label them as when we see people and when we leave this place and we see our server and we see people in the community, we do label them this way. That that person right there, here's the label, the name tag they're wearing. They are someone Jesus came for. He left heaven and he came to earth for them for your server in the restaurant today. He came for them. 
That's that's someone that, that cut me off in traffic. They are someone Jesus died for. They are someone that Jesus loved enough that he gave his life for them. That's someone that is annoying me in the office this week. They are someone Jesus raised from the dead for so that they could experience new life. That is the label we paint people with. That is someone he came for, lived for, died for, and resurrected for, and that's how we see people. Man, it's so easy to get sucked into the name calling, isn't it? The labeling, the destroying, the canceling. It's a worldly point of view. Not so with you, not so with me. Christ's love compels us. His life compels us. His death compels us. His resurrection compels us. We see people differently. So there's a regarding element to this. We don't regard anybody from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ this way. We're not doing that any longer because of his love. And then there's a reconciling work part of this. Remember what our text said? Uh, I love this. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ Underline this. If you're going to underline anything, underline this. Not counting people's sins against them. You ought to be praising the Lord for that verse, and me too. And he has committed to us. He has committed to you and to me the, the message of reconciliation. When I consider the work that Jesus did on my behalf, oh, friends, he could have counted my sins against me. One by one by one, he could have counted my sins against me. But instead of counting my sins, he counted the cost and he went to the cross and he paid for my sin. The wages of sin is death. He took my place and he resurrected so that I could be empowered to live a different life. When I consider that, here's my question for you and for me. How on earth... Could I ever feel that it was appropriate to walk around this world and count other people's sins against them? When I consider the work Christ has done for me, how could I leave this place and count someone's sins against them? And our culture is so good at it. You are an adulterer. You will forever be an adulterer. You are a liar. You will forever be a liar. You are a thief. You will forever be a thief. You are selfish. You will forever be selfish. And our sins are forever held against us. It is not the gospel. It's a lot of things that is not the gospel. It is not good. And if I can be so blunt to speak into culture just for a minute, we are destroying each other with our righteous indignation. And the ironic part of it is the scriptures say there is no one righteous, no, not one. So if you believe you are the righteous one who is entitled to hold sins against other people, I would argue the scriptures that there's no one righteous, no, not one. And I don't know about you, but I have decided to take my ball and go home on this. Instead of holding people's sins against them, I want to point them to Jesus. I want the message of my life to be that sin in your life, listen, that sin in your life, God doesn't hate you for that sin. 
And he's not done with you. On the contrary, he became a human being and left heaven for that very thing that you're ashamed of. That thing you're carrying around, listen, you need to know, it can be forgiven. Jesus went to the cross for that very thing that you won't let go of. Even more than forgiven, here's the good news of Jesus, even more than being forgiven, it can be overcome. That you don't have to walk around with that forever. You can overcome it by the power of the grave. It's why he rose from the dead, so that you could be an overcomer. Not holding people's sins against them anymore. I'm I'm done playing that game. Our culture can play it if they want, and in the end, there will be a trail of dead bodies all around. I'm going to point people to Jesus. The power of his resurrection. The invitation of his grace. The overwhelming nature of his love. And here's what is true. If you've been reconciled, if you are here this morning, you're like, that is me. he could have held my sins against me and instead he showed me grace. If that is you, if you have been reconciled, guess what the scripture says? You are called into a reconciling ministry. We sometimes think when we hear the word ministry, we sometimes think it is the work of a select called few, the clergy. On the contrary, this is the work of all those who've experienced the love, grace, and new life of Jesus. So you say, what, is that? what does it even mean that I am called into a reconciling ministry. Here's what I think people that understand their calling. To, man, I've been reconciled. The message of my life is going to be pointing people to Jesus. Here's what they understand. Regard people correctly. It's real hard to win someone to Christ that you view as a political enemy. So we do not make people our enemies. We don't. We do not hold their sin against them. We don't. We point them to Jesus. So we regard people correctly. We, are, we strive to be a good example of a reconciled person. And we fail at this every day, but we try. We walk in joy, hope, peace, and grace. We are different. We try to be different because we have been forgiven and Jesus gave us an overcoming spirit. But the most important thing is we are on message Understand this. This is amazing. Here's what those, these verses said. That God, all right, understand the magnitude of this. Not to freak you out, but I freaked myself out by reading the text earlier, so I'm going to freak you out, right? God is making his appeal to this world through you. And I love how Paul categorizes the message. When he says, stay on point, stay on message. Here's how Paul starts it. Here's the message. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Here is the message that God wants in the world, that he is entrusted to you and he's entrusted to me. We implore you on Christ's behalf, become a Democrat. Become a Republican. Get vaccinated. Don't get vaccinated. Vote for this candidate. No, 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 no. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. This is the message 
This is our ball that we carry. This is the thing that we hold on to. This is the message of our life and our heart and our mind. Be reconciled to God. And we get so distracted and we chase after other balls, but this is the one that we come back to. Be reconciled to God. I don't care what political party you're a part of. Be reconciled to God. I don't care your vaccination status. Be reconciled to God. I don't care who you voted for. Be reconciled to God. Because God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. And that is the gospel, guys. It's the great exchange that Martin Luther talks about. That on the cross, I gave Jesus all of my sin. And through the resurrection, he gave me all of his righteousness. And so we walk around with a message of grace a message of hope, a message of new life. And if we have one drum that we're going to beat, let's have that drum be the one that we beat. I implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his grace. I pray that we wouldn't be distracted by politics and things that are making us all anxious. But right now, especially at this time in human history, we'd be an example to the people what a reconciled person looks like. That we would regard people correctly. We wouldn't regard anyone from a worldly point of view. And that we would be on message. We wouldn't get distracted by messages that are maybe important, but someone else is to take up. That our message is from you. We implore you on Jesus' behalf, be reconciled to your heavenly Father. Give us the courage to do it. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. We're going to receive communion right now, and we're going to remember this central message of the faith. Uh, and uh, I don't know about you, but like when I'm surfing the net, I find myself getting uh, real amped up and real distracted, right? And so this is the moment, this is like beat social media every time because this is the, the time when we can recenter and be like, man, he entrusted this to me. He entrusted this to us. So let's be examples. Let's be on message. Let's, uh, let's be on point. And this is our time to recenter on that, to say, man, the most important thing, this is how people are reconciled back to God. This is how their sins are forgiven. This is how they're given new hope. This is how they're given eternal life. It is through the work of Jesus, and this is the most important thing. So let's recenter on it and remember it. We'll pass out a communion. You can hold on to the cups, and I'll come back up in just a minute. We'll receive it together. His body given for you. His blood poured out. And we leave this place absolutely motivated by this love. Motivated by Christ's love to, to demonstrate that love to others. And I promise you, it will be hard. I, uh, I, was, I was joking with Cheryl that we had a situation. We, we had come home a few weeks ago and from, from something and we had decided to door dash some food just because it was convenient. And uh, the door dash was like on his way to our house and all of a sudden it, the, bu the button just stopped blinking. And it's like, hey, we're gonna refund your money. You know, that he's not coming. He had our food, but he wasn't coming. And uh, so Cheryl had called DoorDash, said, what's going on? And they said, oh, there was an unforeseen problem, right? Uh, we got a 10-year-old and a 3-year-old. They were super hungry. We didn't have any food. 
You know, so we're trying to figure out, so, you know what, I'm just going to McDonald's. I'm going to go to McDonald's and get the food. And that did not go well either. And I'm just kind of waiting in line, you know, after a half hour or whatever. I'm like, be nice to the workers. Be nice to the workers. <laughs> be ni- be- because they're working hard and, and Christ's love compels me. Uh, and, and I know it's hard when you get into frustrating situations, but my prayer for you and for me is that we would leave this place motivated and compelled by his love because we've been forever changed by it. And so we're not, holding, we're not misidentifying or even correctly identifying people in some other way. When we see them, Christ came for them. He lived for them. He died for them. He resurrected for them. We're not regarding anyone from a worldly point of view, but instead we We walk in grace and we demonstrate love and we stay on message. Let's stand and sing one last song.